Hey everyone, and welcome to the Pisgah Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Mangler, and that is Drew, and you are listening to Pisgah. We're coming to you live from a weather station pretty far away from Mount Everest. So let's get this thing kicked off with news and past week updates. Oh yeah. So uh, what is it? V Hollow Bike Park over in Townsend, Tennessee just opened this past weekend. Yeah, or V Holler if you're real Appalachian about it. But yeah, we had heard whispers of this project going on and you know we're stoked that it finally opened. And I took a trip out this past weekend for the, I think it's what they're calling it, a soft open. But yeah, very rad spot. And yes, we have an upcoming episode with their designer. So stay tuned for that coming soon. The holler indeed. And if you say it differently than that, we'll probably fight you. Oh yeah. So Mangler, it's the holidays. It is. And I spent this past weekend kind of getting my ducks in a row for holiday shopping. Let's just go over some quick holiday gift ideas that are actually in stock right now. That is a good call because I too have been falling down the shopping rabbit hole of what to get the girlfriend and the friends and the families. Yeah, totally. And let's just do shameless plug. We got some new merch in the in the web store right now. We got water bottles finally. Yes. So Pisgah Podcast water bottle and a t-shirt. Those make great gifts, guys. They really do. And they're not expensive. Yep. And also we're going into wintertime and I don't know if you guys are like me, but I love a good hot cup of coffee in the morning. And we've got Pisgah Coffee Roasters, which is right there uh, outside of Brevard. And they also have a bag of coffee that gives back to Pisgah Area Sorba. And also Drop In Coffee out of Richmond, Virginia. They have a program where they're partnering up with what they call Rad Share. And when you buy a, a certain bag of coffee, it gets money to Rad Share and gets kids bike helmets. So how awesome is that? Yeah, I like both of those things for sure. And you know what? I've been seeing Pisgah Coffee Roasters stuff. It's popping up everywhere and all kinds of retailers. So oh, yeah. you can find it in the area now for sure. Yeah, the end cap at Ingalls, I see it there. Yeah, totally. I even saw they had a booth at uh, at the outlet malls. So, you know, you can you can find an excuse to, to find it wherever you're at. Some other good ideas that are actually in stock. You could book some guided trips Mm -hmm. if you're looking for you know maybe a way to to get around pisgah and find some new options some new trails that you're not used to riding and it's also kind of the down season so it's a good time to get your suspension serviced and you know we have all kinds of places around here to get your suspension serviced you have the the factory suspension servicing from uh, king creek olins fox but you also have your places like find your line and even uh, MTB Suspension Service by Colette Machine and Tool. And also, if you're looking to fancy up your bike a little bit, Endless Chain Rings are in stock. I did confirm that with, with Shanna. And also, Shanna offers coaching services. So, you know, either a coaching session from Shanna Powell, and she's been doing lots of stuff at Canuga and DuPont. And then also, Drew, um, one of our past guests. Josh Whitmore. So yeah, lots of good coaching options out there in the Western North Carolina zone. Another really good gift that's in stock right now is Pisgah Map Company. Anybody that wants to get out in the woods and kind of expand the boundaries that they're looking at might need some maps to see the area that they're going. And it's a great resource once you've taken those guided trips and those skills clinics. And not to mention a couple episodes ago, we did our body care episode 
we've got yoga classes, we've got roughing massages, uh, a gym membership isn't a bad idea. And you know, who says you can't get a physical therapy check-in gift certificate? You know, that's a great way to get your body healed during, you know, kind of quote the down season of winter months. But based on the weather we've been having, it's been full tilt. But yeah, definitely not a bad idea. And regarding the winter months, uh, a familiar Western North Carolina company, Eno Hammocks, they have this awesome blanket called the Field Day Blanket. Just kind of like a, it's like a sleeping bag that's not a bag, it's just a blanket. And uh, another thing is just generally support your local bike shops and gear retailers. These spots have had it rough with the goings-on in the past almost two years with the uh, big to-your-door sellers having a field day of their own. These small guys kind of need your business right now. They need it much worse than the online shops do this holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely want to support our local businesses and retailers. So despite these warm and dry temps we've been having this past week, uh, winter is coming eventually. And to best get us in the mood for that, I caught up with Dr. Baker Perry from Appalachian State University to talk Southern Appalachian weather. He has studied snow and moisture from all the way here on the short slopes of Appalachia all the way to Mount Everest. Mainly, man, I'm just psyched to talk weather. Mm. I'm kind of a weather nerd. Mostly my weather interest veers more towards the, you know, extreme weather, severe storms and stuff like that. Well, weather is a fascinating topic. And if you live in the mountains, I think we have no choice but to become weather nerds of some sort because it has such an impact on on what we do on a daily basis and um and just it, the weather mountain weather is just so variable and mm-hmm. um you know in, in, in space and in time i mean as you know living in brevard and the pisgah area i mean it's just go up in elevation a bit or just drive uh, towards hendersonville or or Asheville or you know, certainly up to Lake Toxaway and just huge changes. Oh, absolutely. See. So, and you may not know this, but I, I spent uh, a couple summers working at Camp Carolina in Brevard. Okay. And, uh, and so I have pretty good familiarity with Brevard and certainly the Pisgah area. And I, and I, I grew up a big chunk of my childhood from fourth grade all the way through high school in Waynesville. And so, okay. So I lived just over just the border over the there, I guess, into Hay- Haywood County and, and spent mm-hmm. quite a bit of time up high in, 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 in that area. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's a, it's a topic that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. And of course, the time that I've spent in Boone and, and the high country is um, a bit farther away from Pisgah, but, um, but still it's Western North Carolina. It's in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so, yeah, these are, there's a lot to talk about for sure. And dude, I feel like Camp Carolina, I venture over into that little, that little pocket every now and then during the off season. And it's almost like Camp Carolina almost has its little like weather system being tucked back away. It does. I mean, the radiational cooling in there on clear, calm nights can be quite impressive uh just with those high ridge lines around there and those big open fields it's just an ideal place for the temperature really to drop baker can you kind of give us like a intro and a brief introduction to who you are and what it is that you do 
Well, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Baker Perry. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Appalachian State University. I've been there really since 1996 when I started as a graduate student and kind of worked my way up and was able to complete my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. And I, you know, the last 15 years or so, I've, I've really focused on studying mountain precipitation and mountain weather and climate more broadly. And, mm -hmm. and, and a big, big focus has been on the Ap Southern Appalachians. I mean, my PhD dissertation was on the topic of Northwest flow snowfall. I mean, that was a topic that I, of course, just grew up with in, in Haywood County and was just fascinated by you know, how the northern section of the county, the Pigeon River Gorge, Fines Creek could, you know, could get six to eight inches or sometimes more than that. And we would have only just a few flurries or maybe an inch or two down mm -hmm. in Waynesville in that area. And so I've been very fortunate to, to, to continue to study snowfall patterns in the Appalachians and use a variety of remotely sensed data, model data, and surface observations, uh, weather stations that I've set up and direct snowfall measurements that, that I've made and worked closely with Doug Miller and some of his students from UNC Asheville to launch weather balloons during snow events. And, and so, so that's been a big part of what I've done over the past 15, 20 years. But um, over the past 10 years, I've expanded into the Andes and um, have set up a number of weather stations there and, and worked on some ice core paleoclimate projects and um, digging lots of snow pits up high. And then, and then most recently, I've gotten involved with National Geographic and we um, installed the highest weather stations in the world on Mount Everest in 2019 and um, heavily involved in their maintenance and operation currently. And I uh, was also part of a National Geographic expedition to Chile earlier this year where we installed a weather station. So over the past, you know, five, I guess, five to 10 years, I've, I've transitioned a bit more out of the, the Southern Appalachians, which you know, is, has been mixed because I have such strong, you know, interests and backgrounds and history, uh, in the Southern Appalachians, but, uh, but there've been opportunities to go to some of these, uh, bigger mountain ranges and, and, and study some topics that are of, you know, huge societal significance related to water and, um, and glacier change and, um, and so that's been, that's been exciting. So that, that's basically what I'm doing now is, is really working to expand observational networks at, on, in the highest mountains in the world and really all focused on the topic of, of water and, and climate change. And as if we can understand the scientific processes in these places, um, then we can um, improve projections for how uh, glacier and snow cover and broader weather patterns may change in the future that have direct relevance to literally over uh, a billion people uh, downstream. We're talking about high, high mountain Asia and also portions of the Andes. So mountains, 
very important. And, um, yeah, you know, weather, climate, glacier climate interaction. So uh, that's, that's a lot of what I do these days. Well, growing up in Haywood County and spending some time and, you know, in the Brevard area, I'm sure you've grown up with an interest in the outdoors. So what kind of recreating do you, do you kind of look to do? So growing up, I, I was very active in, um, in team sports and some individual sports and just running, but, uh, my parents, um, got me outdoors though. And we did lots of hiking and probably more snow, more so in the, in the, in the Smokies as opposed to the, the Pisgah range, but the mountains are right there in Haywood County. And so, Mm -hmm. um, lots of hiking and backpacking growing up. And then after college, yeah, when I ended up at, at Camp Carolina, I had just graduated from college and I was really getting into trail running and 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 rock climbing and and cycling. And so, I mean, it was just a perfect place to do all of those. That's why we live here. Of course, that's why yeah, that's, that's certainly what you know. And so that's that's what I continue to do. I mean, I I, I do a Gosh, it's I am a huge advocate of cross training, and um, and so I'll spend long days on the bike riding hill repeats. Um, I'll you know do some long hikes and uh, trail runs, and you know, I, gosh, it's been a while, but I I really don't get out and and rock climb a whole lot. It's been a long time since doing that, but uh, but I did go through a phase of rock climbing quite a bit, especially in, in and around the Brevard area. Based on what you've just told me and some of the uh, stuff you, you mentioned in kind of your, your intro, it sounds like you went to school to become a scientist and then you figured out how to take your love for outdoor adventure and science and combine those two. And you've just had some pretty big accomplishments with, you know, some installations of weather stations and the the upper Andes and Mount Everest. People look to those things as like big life accomplishments just to hike those or to summit them. Not only did you summit them, you took a crew up there with you to install weather stations. So that's pretty crazy. I've been fortunate to combine my research interests with my love for the outdoors and my my interests in physical activity i I guess um and and it's yeah it is a recreation interest but but i've been a lifelong athlete and again this goes right back to my my days from um, tuscola high school in, in waynesville and have really appreciated uh, the, the physical challenges that come with, um, with competition, but in the mountains, there are huge challenges, of course, just with covering the distances, working in, uh, extremes. And, um, and as you know, there's a, there's a, the fitness is a huge part of that. And so having the, the fitness component along and the training that goes along with that, of course, and then the the adventure component of just being out in, in some of these places and the skills that are required. And then the science, you know, are, are three really 
somewhat diverse, but you know, essential components for, for what I do. And, and one piece of my background that I didn't mention that is, is before we moved to Haywood County and when I was in fourth grade, I lived in, in, in Bolivia. My family lived there. We lived at 13,000 feet. And so that was part of my childhood experience from seven to nine. My family, we, we would go on day hikes up to 17,000 feet and, wow. and right up to the edge, right, right up to the edges of, of the glaciers. And so that, that was an incredibly formative period for me as well. And so I, I actually spent two semesters while I was an undergraduate studying abroad in Bolivia. And I didn't, I mean, th those were not physical science, uh, like climate, weather, semesters, there was, I mean, there was a lot of language. Um, and I had the opportunity to, I mean, I, my Spanish, we, we did a lot in Spanish, of course, but I also had the opportunity to study one of the indigenous languages, Aymara, and to become conversant in it. I mean, studied cultural anthropology. And so that, that was a very formative experience. And, and, and is it really those skills and, and the knowledge that I gained from the time abroad has been so important in the work that I do now too, and about building relationships and understanding, uh, the nature of, um, communities. And so, so that's, that, that's a piece of my background that is, is, is pretty important for the work that I'm doing right now too. Gosh, just, uh, I mean, the, the times that I've spent in, in the Southern Appalachians have been um, very formative and very memorable as well. And, and a lot of that's been the outdoor recreation opportunities for sure. Talk to me a little bit about the Mount Everest mission. I know you probably talk about it a lot because it's a pretty big thing, but you know, that's not something that you just off the couch and go and do. What did training for that mission look like? You know, that's not just a, a casual hike, like up to Mount Mitchell. It's actually like out and backing Mount Mitchell like five times and each lap the oxygen gets like choked down on you just a little bit more each time. So, but you know, you tell me you grew up at 13,000 feet and would recreate up to 17,000. I mean, yeah, you've not lived there for a while, but your, your body has a memory of that, I'm sure. So how, how did that whole process go with you, you and your team? Yeah. So it's, it's a process, as you said, it's not it's very difficult to, if not impossible to go from the couch to Mount Everest without doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in my case, you know, I, as I mentioned, I had been fortunate in about 2014 to get a big grant from the National Science Foundation to support some of our work in the Andes. And so that provided funding for uh, me to take um, some undergraduate students and, and graduate students to, I mean, we, we worked as high as 21,000 feet digging snow pits. And then you know, we set up weather stations, not quite that high, but at um, 18,000 feet. And so I had been on multiple expeditions and, and spent quite a bit of time sleeping, you know, above 17,000 feet. And so my body had that experience already. And, and it's not just the physiological adaptations that occur, but there's a, there's a whole mental preparation and just being able to, you know, oh, yeah. learn 
how to stay warm, uh, and you know, how to keep your boots from freezing at night and, and just how to deal with adversity on some of these expeditions when things don't go necessarily according to plan. Those are all, you know, perhaps even more important lessons than, than just the physical preparation. So it, it takes time to build those experiences. So, so fortunately I had some of that, of course, I'd never been to, well, I'd been to Nepal before, but I'd never been to, to Everest base camp. I'd been very close to it and it's certainly never been above Everest base camp. And so I didn't have the experience of, of being on Everest as a climber before, but I had spent time on glaciers. I, I, I knew how to put on crampons. I knew how to use an ice axe. I knew how to, I, I could, I could climb ice. I, I could, I was comfortable walking on ice. So that certainly was, was a plus for me. Yeah. Um, but you, know, you had a deep Everest, skill set going into it. Exactly. I mean, I had some of the basic skills. I'd, I'd never been above 21,000 feet, but you know, I had confidence that, that I, I could handle and it could function in, in those uh, elevations. And you know, the thing about Everest is it's just such a, I mean, it's, it's a, it gets crowded. I mean, there's a lot of people that go there uh, during this period of the year. And so that's a whole nother element, um, is negotiating the, um, number of people that are there and the, um, everything's, I mean, most everything is fixed. Uh, so there's fixed, fixed lines. And so it's, it's a little different. Um, it took some, you know, a few adjustments just to learn how to work efficiently moving, moving with the fixed lines, but that, 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 that was relatively quick. And then from our expedition standpoint, we just had, we had a huge team. I mean, we had, I mean, 35 scientists uh, working in and out of base camp and all the support staff. And then wow. uh, even above base camp, we had we had a team of 22, you know, 15 Sherpa and then um, seven with media team and scientists. And so there was just a lot of moving parts on Everest, which made it a challenge, uh, for sure. with just that big a team. Well, let's, uh, let's bring it back down a, a few thousand feet and back on this side of the mountain. How does setting up a, a weather station on Everest compared to, you know, one of your more recent ones, such as Roan mountain. The biggest difference is that, uh, when something goes wrong, it's much easier to get to Roan mountain, uh, or it's a, it's a little beach quicker. mountain, you know, if, yeah. uh, if an instrument breaks or, the data transmission stops, then, um, oh, no big deal. I work out, I can get out there today if I needed to, you know, but, yeah. uh, but with Everest, I mean, we did nobody could go back to those stations for two years, um, because oh, okay. there was no climbing season in 2020 because of the pandemic. Yep. There, there, there had been a winter attempt there were two different teams that were trying to go up in February of 2020, but couldn't get above camp three on the Lotse face just because the, the winds were too strong and, you know, there were small rocks and avalanches coming down the face. And so, so we didn't, I mean, it's just such a limited window to, to get there. And then, you know, the time frame that we have to actually do any scientific work or to set up the stations is so limited as well. 
because of the environment. And so we're talking, you know, two, two to three hours at max. And so everything just has to be uh, pre-planned and, and practiced and everybody's roles need to be exceptionally well-defined and just has to be thought out and planned out. And, um, you know, going to maybe even the stations in the Andes that I've set up, and typically we have a much more flexible time period to, and not to say there aren't challenges, but it's not, we're not limited to that, to that extent. You've mentioned that, you know, Beach Mountain, Rome Mountain, what are some of the other areas that you've got weather stations set up in like Western North Carolina area or Southern Appalachian? Well, really one of the first stations that I was a part of was Grandfather Mountain. And uh, this is a, a, a fun story. Uh, it was back in 2005, I believe it was. I may be off by a year, but, you know, Grandfather had always been you know, recognized as a, as a windy place. Uh, mm-hmm. but the observations, the, 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 the anemometer at the time was, was on the top, just barely above the roof of the, the old building there by the swing and bridge. And, you know, within the meteorological community, it was, it was well understood that the values were were likely inflated. Not to say that they were inaccurate, but they weren't representative. It's just there was acceleration occurring. Yeah, because there's like a little valley over the stuff right there. Yeah, I mean it was top of a three-story building right there, and there's a little gap through the parking lot there at the I think what they call the top shop. And so there was a. <laughs> I ended up getting a call after one of these big events when they reported a 200 mile an hour wind from. Um, from a reporter from the Winston-Salem Journal. And actually I I wasn't there. I think, I think my wife answered the phone and, uh, you know, she said, you know, there's, there's more to this than, uh, than what people are willing to talk about. And, and so I wasn't eager to really go on the record to say anything because I was just still trying to finish my PhD, you know, I was still a graduate student, but, but anyway, I, I, I put him in touch with, um, a colleague, Ryan Boyles from the state climate office and, and got Ryan to, to go on the record with uh, some oh. of the meteorological concerns. And then also encouraged him to talk with Larry Lee, who is the science and operations officer for the national weather service in Greenville Spartanburg. Uh, and so the two of them, you know, expressed some of the concerns and kind of got me off the hook a bit, uh, from having a direct quote in there. And, or your wife's uh, direct and, quote. Then, <laughs> and then as a result of that, we, you know, it's kind of a long story short, we ended up having a wind summit at uh, Grandfather Mountain that brought in the state climate office, that brought in uh, the National Weather Service, brought in a couple of us from uh, Appalachian State and um, and from the National Climatic Data Center. And we identified three sites that would be acceptable. And, uh, and so Grandfather did some testing on view sheds and, and whatnot. And, and we eventually came up with a solution to just put a tower section on the bridge itself. And so our folks at the machine shop at uh, Appalachian State did an excellent job working with um, Grandfather Mountain team to engineer a little section. And, and so that was quite an exciting project and, and actually very relevant to what we've been doing on Everest now. Okay. Uh, because wind is such an important um, 
component and also engineering for the win. And so, so that was one that took a lot of time to, I mean, they're just, we had, we, the station was, took multiple direct hits by lightning that blew the doors off the enclosure and wow. completely destroyed. And so there's just multiple setbacks like that, you know, countless anemometers destroyed. Uh, I mean, these were anemometers that were wind tunnel tested to, to 220 miles an hour, you know, but you put a, you put an inch in ice, an inch of glaze ice on there with winds torquing it. And so just lots of instrumentation challenges mm -hmm. on grandfather mountain. Okay. Then beach mountain, uh, similar. I've had a station up there since 2007, I guess it was Roan mountain. And then, um, and then I've got two on our, um, on our family farm on old beach mountain, um, which is the very Northern section of, um, of Avery County. And, um, and then we've had, I had one at uh, Bethel elementary school, uh, in Western Watauga, which is talk about cold air drainage. I mean, they, they get impressive radiational cooling in the wintertime there. And I've operated that for maybe four or five years. And, you know, at one point, I mean, we, we had real time observations from the summit of beach and Bethel and just the temperature inversions, I mean, are just phenomenal to watch. And I know the state climate office has some, some graphics set up right now to, to look at that with some of their sites around Western North Carolina. And, and that, so there, there's some really interesting things that, that came out of that data set for sure. That's really awesome. It's, it's cool to, to, to nerd out on some of this stuff. No, absolutely. And I, you know, if I, was a little closer down to the Asheville area. I mean, there are plenty of other sites I'd, I'd love to always been interested in trying to get something up on. Um, well, I mean, there, there's certainly a, there's a weather station of sorts on Mount Leconte, uh, already there's a co-op site because there's an observer that stays there, but getting some high quality precipitation and snow measurement sensors up on Mount Leconte. Lacant would be really fascinating because it's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's quite a place. I mean, it's the snow, especially in the Northwest flow snow they get up there mm -hmm. is remarkable. Now Rhone is pretty good. And we have, we have the station up there that's been collecting exceptional data. We, we, we installed it just before uh, the Superstorm Sandy. Hit. Oh, wow. And so we've had multiple papers come out of it with, with, with that data set. But, you know, somewhere 28, 30 inches of snow in late October up there. And this was dense snow, too. Uh, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. I never, mm -hmm. I never, I mean, it seems like the older I get, the, the less the atmosphere surprises me. But I can tell you, I never, I never anticipated us getting significant snowfall in association with a tropical cyclone with a hurricane making landfall. And, and that, that was just an amazing event in the Southern Appalachians, uh, for sure. Yeah. Well, talk to us about how that comes together. Cause we, we get weather coming from different directions here and especially winter weather, it, it kind of takes like the right sort of setup for us to get snowfall here. But then when you get it on the other side of the ridge, obviously it's different, like on, you know, the, the Northwest side, how did these, how does this set up to, to give us these crazy snow events? So in that case, the, the, you know, the hurricane Sandy took a really uncommon turn in, you know, it basically turned into the coastline, moved 
uh, moved west and began to interact with a very strong cold front and upper level trough. And so, and went through what's called a um, extra tropical transition where it gained more of a winter storm type um, characteristic. And so there was, there was enough cold air on the backside of that storm. And obviously there was plenty of moisture coming in with that, that we were just in you know, from West Virginia all the way down through, you know, the higher elevations, of the Smokies, we were just in that, that sweet spot. And of course this was Northwest flow too. And so we had the orographic component there with the terrain forcing moisture that was already being wrapped around the storm to, to rise and, and that enhanced snowfall rates. And it was you know, just cold enough. And that was a high impact event up high. And it, so it had a lot of similarities um, to some of the other big snowstorms we've, we've had over the years. I mean, blizzard in 93. I mean, we had, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was on a different scale just because of, the just the upper forcing the upper level forcing with the blizzard of 93 was the the moisture was just a lot deeper and and so than it was with sandy but it was still northwest flow uh at its maturation of that storm and and so when we get those ingredients that, that come together uh with the cold sufficient cold air in place strong northwest flow abundant moisture, and you get some upper level support in there that, I mean, we can get some huge snows around here. Actually, one thing I was going to mention, May 6th through 9th, 1992, Mount Pisgah. I didn't live in the area then. Yeah. So Mount, Mount Pisgah, well, the, the report at the time was 60 inches of, of snowfall, but I think there were, I think, I think the measurements were made a bit too frequently uh, to, and so the uh, kind of going back through some other folks, uh, wrote a case study on it and suggested maybe 40 inches was a more likely total, but still, I mean, that was in May. I think I was a senior that year. I was in high school at, at Tuscola and we, we picked up five inches of snow in the Valley in May. And that's still probably the hardest I've ever seen it snow in my life. We got out of school early Crusoe picked up a foot of snow wow. from that. And I, I, I drove up to, um, two fifteen uh, above Lake Logan there and, and there was several feet of snow on the ground, uh, in May. And so that, that was a pretty formative storm, uh, for me as well. You know, that's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so I, I mean, growing up in, in the Southern Appalachians, I can, I can point to that storm. I can point to the the blizzard of 93, uh, which was the year after. And there was the, uh, 1987, April 2nd through 5th, uh, on that day. That was a we, mega cold snap, right? It, it was, it was cold. I mean, certainly cold enough to snow, but this was a massive, um, Northwest flow uh, event that put down anywhere between two and five feet, uh, up along the Tennessee border. And, we, I think I was in seventh grade at the time. We had a track meet in Henderson. Well, let's see. I think it was in Flat Rock and in, in East Henderson. And it was in the 60s. I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was the day the Concord flew to Asheville. And, uh, wow. 
And so it was a beautiful day. We get back to Waynesville, nine or 10 o'clock that evening, and it was already starting to snow. And, uh, and it just, it snowed for three, three to four days continuously, lots of wind. I think there were, um, some hikers that, that got trapped up in shining rock, uh, out of that. And so, so that, that, that was a, one of those big, big storms you remember as a kid as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's funny out of towners will, will hit me up and be like, Hey, how we, we want to do a trip to Pisgah. How's the weather? And like mid April, I'm like, well, it can either be really beautiful and awesome, or it can rain for a week straight, or in this event, it can snow five feet. Yeah. And I think, I think I remember seeing news reports from that, uh, event that rescuers tried to go in with snowmobiles up in, um, shining rock and, and eventually had to abandon those because they got stuck in some eight foot drifts. And, uh, and so, I mean, it can be really challenging up there, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy the weather that we have mm-hmm. kind of, what is it that makes this area unique for weather? I mean, we've got the, the Western Ridge coming in from Tennessee. We've got the, the South Carolina escarpment. We've got how the mountains build up from the East. What is it that weather systems do around here that, you know, is a combination of geography and science that kind of makes this area unique to get some of these mega moisture events? Well, I think, you know, certainly we're fairly close to abundant moisture sources in the Gulf of Mexico and just off the Atlantic there. I mean, the, and, and so that there is, you know, when, when winds come out of the South, Southeast, and even the East, there's, there's abundant moisture available. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's one important I think characteristic. Um, the other is that we have we have the terrain, and and the terrain, especially you know down towards Brevard and, and the Southern Mountains, that and well, and the, and the the Blue Ridge Escarpment overall is frequently oriented somewhat orthogonal or, or perpendicular to the to the moist flow. So when the, when the flow is coming out of the South or the Southeast, that makes it ideal for what we call orographic lifting or just that lifting that is produced by the mountains, by the topography. And, and so that maximizes the enhancement of the, uh, in most cases it's rainfall, but, but it, it can occur with snow uh, too. And, and it just, it maximizes it right there along the escarpment and can produce some exceptionally high precipitation totals. And that's why, I mean, you look at the you know, Lake Toxaway, Highlands, Rosman down through Brevard. I mean, those are the wettest places in, in, in North Carolina. And, um, you know, I know Highlands and Lake Toxaway, that whole area is pushing a hundred inches already for, for this year. And we'll probably get there for the precipitation totals and, and, you know, Lake Toxaway averages well over 90 inches of, of rain per year. And, and so that is that just frequent, uh, enhancement of those very moist winds and air masses coming out of the, off of the Gulf of Mexico and the, and the Atlantic. Now, I mean, 
the same thing happens on the northwest side, but of course, this is the this is typically not quite as much moisture. We do get some that is transported off of the Great Lakes, and certainly there's moisture that wraps around off of storms, off of nor'easters, and so moisture comes off the Atlantic there. But it's a, a longer, longer way. And but you do get the these very cold continental air masses that come in from the northwest, and um, and so the the patterns just that that contrast between northwest flow and southeast flow is just so dramatic and i think you know what's what's really always fascinated me is just how the southwest and northeast orientation of the of the appalachians and is particularly the southern appalachians is just um you know perfectly orthogonal to those those two major flow directions um so it just kind of sets itself up to to be a catch-all it it said yeah it sets itself up to to have enhancement of precipitation on on one side and then of course you go to the other other side and i mean it's very difficult to get accumulating northwest flow snowfall and brevard in, in that area for most events i mean it, it can happen but you're just in a in a you know big snow shadow mm-hmm. uh, behind the smoky the great smoky mountains and of course the pisgah range as well so that's always something that, that's kind of fascinated me as well about that particular part of the southern southern mountains yeah it's always been interesting to me how southern transylvania county can be hitting records on rainfall events but then you go up into like the northern part of Buncombe County, and it's like one of the driest spots in the state. Absolutely, and and you, you go up into northern Buncombe, Madison County, it can be a completely different world, especially with these very moist events that come out of the south and, and southeast, because the train plays such an important role. And that um, that reminds me, I I, I mean, I, I still I tell my students these stories uh, when we talk about precipitation patterns across Western North Carolina. I mean, so many days um, I can remember driving back to Brevard to Camp Carolina on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. We'd typically get a 24 hour break, you know, once a week. And I'd, I'd go home, go to, go to Waynesville. I'd be making that drive going through, mostly I went through Asheville and would come through uh, the airport Mills river. And then um, it would be dry as could be. And a few clouds here and there, but you know, as soon as we cross that little divide and come in on the other side of Mills River, the weather would change, and oh, yeah. uh, and there are just lots of cases where the storms would would build, and 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 it was just a different climate. Uh, and I know you've experienced this this as well, but uh, oh, yeah. but it's 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 quite quite noticeable. Well, speaking of, you know, Southern Appalachia and geographically speaking, how is this area divided up? From a climate perspective and more of a weather perspective, there, yeah, the, I, I use the the concept of snow regions in my PhD dissertation, and okay. they, they broadly correspond with, with kind of weather zones. I mean, I had identified the Southern mountains, which, um, you know, consisted of Henderson and Transylvania over to Jackson and into the Southwest. And then 
I had a central mountain zone, which included Haywood and Buncombe. And, um, I think I had portions of Madison in there and then, and then of course the high country off to the North, but then there's another zone that is above 4,500 feet was the threshold I used for the central and Southern mountains. Once you get above 4,500 feet, it's, it's a different, it's a clearly a different zone. And then in the Northern mountains in the high country, it's more of a 3,500 foot. Once you get above 3,500 feet, you get into that high elevation zone that has a much, much different um, climate than the valley bottoms down below. And then, yeah, as you know, from the precipitation side of things, there's the Blue Ridge Escarpment, which can be, you know, exceptionally wet. And it also is subject to some very damaging wind gusts when we have these strong mountain waves that, that break with the Northwest flow um, wind events. And then pattern kind of reverses itself with, with Southeast flow. Uh, the winds are strongest on the Tennessee border. And so, so there are these peculiar kind of climate zones that are, that are somewhat localized right along the, either the, the Tennessee border, North Carolina, Tennessee border, or the Blue Ridge Escarpment that, uh, I think are fascinating to, to look at. And, um, you know, I think we're getting to a point where we have enough observations to, to really look at some of these finer scale products. And clearly the modeling is there as well to, to look at these on a, on a finer scale as well. One thing I wanted to to touch base on, ask your opinion on is, is it helpful or relevant for users setting up their own weather stations at home and using a system? Like I know you can like add yours, like weather underground and stuff like that. Does, does that help scientists at all? Or is that more of just like a, a consumer thing? No, I think there is value there. And I mean, they, they, they may not be research grade, observations that would perhaps stand a peer review, uh, in a top science journal, but, but they certainly have a role for, you know, highlighting some of these, um, peculiarities and some of these, these patterns that we often suspect, but, um, have not had direct observations for, and then, then that in and of itself could lead to perhaps more focused field campaigns. And, and so I think they definitely have a place, um, especially for the, for the forecasters, um, you know, the national weather service, I mean, those observations can be quite valuable and, um, can, can pique somebody's curiosity. I mean, I know that when I was, I had, I bought this, um, home weather station, I think when I was in junior high school that only worked for a month or two, but it was something and it, and it got me, I mean, that's the first one I ever, I mean, electronic station I ever had. I mean, I had some hand, plenty of handheld stations, but, but so you can't, you can't ever, I mean, there, there's always the chance that just something, even just an an observation from one of these stations can pique somebody's curiosity and, and lead them to take a meteorology course or a snow science course and get them asking questions. And, and that can, that can lead us into some interesting directions for sure. So I want to touch base with you on climate change research, because that's one of the things that you mentioned earlier. And I know that's one of your, your main focuses. 
with having set up weather stations in you know the Himalayas and the the Andes and you know some spots in North America, what is it that you're you're seeing that you think we as people can do to start making a, a true difference? Well, until recently, I've I've always said that um, climate change has been much more front and center in a place like Nepal or Peru or Bolivia, where for those of us that have been going there for several decades now, I mean, the, the changes are um, unmistakable. And for the people that have that, that live there and that um, in particular are, are from some of these communities right in the heart of the mountains. I mean, there've just been, I mean, there've been glaciers completely disappear. There's a, there's a lot more to come. There's been a huge reduction in snow and ice. There've been major impacts on water resource availability. And so this is not some hypothetical future in these places. It's, it's, it's already occurring and there's major impacts to water resources. And, and so on the one hand, I've, I mean, I've seen that, I've seen that play out over the last several decades in North Carolina until recently, I would say that, that, you know, yeah, there've been some changes, but they're, they're, they're they've not been as um, perhaps perceptible, but I think in, in, in 2018, that really began to change when we had our hottest year on record in, in North Carolina. The following year, I was um, part of the North Carolina Climate Science Report and, and co-authored some sections on that and actually was able to, to, to look at data more closely, especially from the mountains. And one of the real key trends that is evident from from that report is that nighttime temperatures not only across the state but but in the mountains have been rising substantially and that is a very clear indicator of climate change consistent with global warming and and this is something that i i mean i think those of us that have lived in the mountains and i mean it's not common to have air conditioning especially up in the high country at all and you know over the years we've we have recognized that that nighttime temperatures have just not been as perhaps as comfortable as they, they used to be. And, and that's a, clear, you're not sleeping with the windows open and stuff. Exactly. And that, that's a, that's a clear trend. And there's, there's other trends in the mountains that are very consistent um, showing, for example, just the heating degree days or the amount of energy that's required over the course of an entire cold season to heat our homes, those, that, those heating degree days have, have, have decreased. And at the same time, cooling degree days, the amount of energy required on a threshold of 65 degree base has increased. And that combined with just the increase in heavy precipitation and gosh, you know, we saw that back in August, uh, locally. I mean, those, the flood damage on Crusoe and, and kind of the, the Southern Haywood County and even into portions mm-hmm. of, you know, Balsam Grove got hit really hard and the whole, yeah. I guess some of those, some of those gravel roads are still, um, heavily damaged, I think in Pisgah, um, yep. area. Mm-hmm. 475 is still closed. There's a, there's a, a, a clear connection here that is as, as the atmosphere warms, uh, it's capacity to hold water vapor increases. And so that means that we're seeing 
increases in the heaviest precipitation. And that's a consistent signal all around the world. And we just we just saw it over the weekend in um, in British Columbia. Uh, this yeah, British Columbia, uh, Bellingham, Washington is having major flood events. Yeah, I mean, there's this huge atmospheric river coming in, and and so there are new rainfall records being set. Uh, it seems like almost on a monthly basis in some place around the world. And so that, that's, that's something that's of course concern for, um, places like, uh, Brevard and Pisgah, because, um, you put a little bit more water vapor into the atmosphere and, and especially if you warm, warm the air a bit as well, then that means the orographic enhancement or the um, the lifting that the mountains produce can ring out even more more rainfall and it's not linear it's it's an exponential increase in some of these cases and so the impacts can be that much more significant in these cases and so that that's a big concern uh, and of course you have more people building on on steeper hillsides and and so there's concerns about slope failure and um debris flows and so yeah there there are some legitimate concerns as we look to the future um about climate change even in the mountain i mean in the mountains we don't have sea level rise really to worry yeah. about you know but heavy precipitation increases and we see stronger tropical cyclones and hurricanes, those are concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that I was going to ask you about. If you had studied much on how different soil compounds in this region handle precipitation and kind of what the breakdown was for uh, slope failure and things like that, because you know, I, I know in this zone, especially like the Saluda grade um, and some of these areas where there's lots of like bedrock that's steeply sloped and then you have like a layer you know the, the the soil layer above it and you know these heavy rain events just eat through the soil layer and then when they get to that rock layer it's just like game over you know surfs up so i don't know if you'd study much on that yeah no i've not i've not really studied the soil uh types and its relationship to to rainfall. But as you point out, I mean, a lot of these soils are just so thin to begin with. And that's what strikes me. I don't know if you've, you've looked at those. Um, there was a great case study that the Greer National Weather Service office did on the Peaks Creek debris flow from uh, Hurricane Ivan. And the pictures from where that slide started, up at, I think this is Fish Hawk Mountain, I think. Um, I mean, we're just amazing because this the soil is so thin up there. I mean, there's lots of vegetation, but you put that much rainfall on a steep slope that has very, very thin soils. And these sorts of um, debris slides are going to, are going to happen. And that's, I think, just part of the nature of our, of our topography mm -hmm. and, um, and the dynamic, dynamic nature of our, of our weather patterns as well. For someone who's more interested in digging into some of these studies, where would you point them? 
Well, I think the probably the most comprehensive for the state is the North Carolina Climate Science Report. And okay. um, it's, I think if you just do a search for North Carolina Climate Science Report or NC CSR, there's a website that uh, North Carolina State University has set up. They were the lead institution for that. And uh, and it's an excellent report, very comprehensive and uses uh, all the available data from, from North Carolina in, in making some of these assessments. It also takes some of the output from the climate models and you know, has numerous maps focused on North Carolina for how, for example, precipitation may change in the future, uh, how the number of cold days may change in the future. And so it's a really, really well done. And again, I I wasn't the lead author, but I was a contributing author and and helped with some of the, especially wrote some of the winter weather sections, but the the team led by Ken Kunkel and, um, and um, David Easterling just did an excellent job of putting that report together. So, and, and I think, and, and that cites a lot of the key specific studies from Western North Carolina or from the Piedmont that people may want to take a closer look at as well. One thing that I feel that you're educated to talk about is how a tropical storm or Hurricane Fred um, made a huge impact here. And, you know, a lot of areas are still de- dealing with the devastation from that. S- talk to us on kind of how that storm set up and what what happened with it. How how was it so devastating to this area? Yeah, so I I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact recollection of the details, especially as we get farther away from an event. But but from what I recall, there was just this ideal orographic enhancement with the terrain. So there was already heavy rain associated, of course, with the circulation around Fred, but but just the strong southeast flow that developed associated with it. And there was some training where just repeated showers and thunderstorms developed over the same area that combined with just the you know, extra lift that the, that the mountains provide, I mean, that, 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 that put things over, over the edge. And so it, there, there wasn't anything necessarily exceptional about the, I mean, we, we've had that happen before, of course, with other systems, but, you know, I it's think like this repetition, it, it just kept I, building on there, itself. There, there's repetition, but I think, I think a key story here as well is just that the atmosphere is now a bit warmer and and that there is a little bit more water vapor that is available. And so so I, I think that is that is part of the story here with Fred. I, I definitely heard some some numbers thrown out of like upwards of twenty four inches of rain in a twenty four hour period or something like that up along like the black balsam area. Do you do you know of any official numbers or any official data off the top of your head? I know that the state climate office has a has an Econet station up on um, Frying Pan Mountain. I think is the name yeah, of it, right the there. Frying Pan, where the uh, the fire yeah. tower is and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they 
they recorded 12 inches up there in a, or just over 12 inches in a, in a fairly short period of time. And yeah, they're probably, you know, of course we can, this is a whole nother topic, but there are big challenges in measuring precipitation accurately, especially when there's uh wind, some wind involved and you really need mm-hmm. some shielding. So it's, I mean, it's quite possible that there was a good bit more than that. But and what's interesting is, so where their station is on frying pan, I mean, it's maybe four or five miles from like the Black Balsam area. Mm-hmm. And like the week after the storm, I went into the forest and explored some of the zones, mostly uh, the zone like west of 276 along some of those forest roads where there's a couple of waterfalls and stuff. And just kind of took note of kind of how uh, each sort of valley or mm. holler looked. Mm. And I would look on, you know, my, my phone app at like a, a when the, the Pisgah map company map and look at, you know, which drainage came down from the parkway mm. and certain drainages like that were a little more East definitely showed some signs of heavy rain. But as I got, you know, more West over towards the, the Davison river, the Daniel Ridge area, like it was just like night and day difference between the amount mm. of rain. So mm. it, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, yeah, the frying pan tower recorded, you know, 12 inches in a short amount of time. But just seeing how those hollers were affected versus how stuff further west mm-hmm. towards like, you know, something below black balsam was just mm-hmm. like drastically different. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite possible. And that's just where I think you, you, you highlight the, one of the key points is that we just need more observations in mm-hmm. the mountains. And yeah. I mean, that's true around here in the Southern Appalachians. And it's especially true when you get above 17, 18,000 feet, when we can literally only count the number of weather stations at those elevations on, on, on two hands globally. And so that's just, you know, there, there's a huge need for that. And there's such spatial variability, uh, in mountains. And sometimes we just, we just never know how much actually fell. I know that um, uh, Dr. Doug Miller from UNC Asheville has been operating a network of, um, of, of rain gauges in the Smokies and also in, in portions of the Pisgah range. And I don't know, I mean, he has some stations around there that, I mean, they, they're not real time. He has to go there and download. Mm-hmm. Um, so be curious to know what, what sort of values he got from that yeah. storm. That would um, be interesting. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't asked him about that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly when you have people living in some of these places, there's a, there's a, I'll make a pitch for the community collaborative rain, hail and snow network, uh, Coco mm-hmm. rise, which is a citizen science uh, program that uh, allows uh, homeowners, uh, really anybody to, to make precipitation observations and report those directly to the website. And I think that, that is, that has really been uh, a helpful data source for precipitation more broadly across Western North Carolina and, and snowfall as well. Problem is, you know, nobody lives up on, you know, yeah, black no, balsam play. and you know yeah. we don't have homes up there in other places we do and so mm-hmm. you know helps with the data and places where people live but there's still lots of other places especially even across western north carolina where their their national forest land or 
or wilderness or national park, yeah, wilderness areas, national parks, you name it. And so there's a big need for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Baker is, are you active on social media at all? I'm somewhat active. Uh, I'm getting lots of coaching from my kids, uh, <laughs> which helps, but, but I am on, um, I'm on Twitter is Baker Perry one and my Instagram is l.baker.perry. So, so I am out there and, um, I, I do a bit, not as much mm-hmm. as I'd like to, but I'm, I'm working on it. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter seems like more of the, the, the scientist social media versus Instagram or Facebook. It does. And that, you know, Twitter has been really fantastic for not only the weather nerds and there's plenty of those, um, in the Southern Appalachians, which have been fun to connect with, but also, um, gosh, broader climate change, um, climate science, and especially glacier climate interactions and, uh, and the Himalayas and the Andes. It's been very, very stimulating to be part of, um, yeah, to be part of some of those conversations that are happening. Yeah, most of my Twitter feed is uh, is storm chasing people. That's mostly what I use Twitter for in the spring. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a pleasure getting to talk some some Southern Appalachian weather and hearing about you know some of your other projects with you know, snowfall measurement and and climate analysis. So thank you for doing what you're doing. It's uh, it's greatly appreciated. Even are those who don't know that they need to appreciate it yet. Well, Mike, this has been a, a lot of fun to talk about some of these uh, really important topics. And um, and yeah, I think we, we need more time to, to really dive into uh, some of these uh, extreme events and and just the you know, Brevard and Southern, the Southern Mountains and the Pisgah Range are a fascinating place. And um, it's great to see that you have uh, this podcast going. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Man, there is a lot of good information in there. And one takeaway that got my brain really connecting things is where he mentions that a tropical storm led to winter weather here in Western North Carolina. I think it's pretty common that we all get caught up kind of in our own world thinking of the weather is super localized and it, and it is in the geographical sense, but holistically there's so much more in, in this broad chain of events that makes what happens in our neighborhood go down. Just looking at how, you know, a couple of weeks ago in the Pacific Northwest, all that crazy rain was happening. And then it's like a yin and a yang where it's super wet over there, but super dry here. And then as things shift around, it'll bring it all back. You know, we usually do our, our episodic weather reports, and it's kind of all over the place sometimes because generally I'm pulling the weather forecast from a more neutral zone in this area. And usually I go by the weather for Fletcher, North Carolina, mostly because that's kind of the closest to the airport, so it's going to be more in tune with the National Weather Service's report for, you know, the actual airport. And it kind of gives a a good middle ground for our region, so to speak, of southwestern North Carolina. But it's so much more than that. And hopefully, you know, people got a good understanding of 
how Western North Carolina weather can vary so greatly, just 90 miles, you know, it's, it's crazy to think about. And I would even say just shy of 90 miles. Because as mountain bikers, we all kind of know what trails drain well after it rains or which places get unaffected by a major storm or what places are kind of okay to ride in the wet and which places we definitely want to avoid. Mm-hmm. And if you take that span, I would even say that it comes down to 30 to 40 miles. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, just looking at the distance from like Hot Springs to DuPont, it takes you a while to drive there. And the I-40 corridor. Yeah, the I-40 corridor, totally. But, you know, it was it was really awesome for me to nerd out and do some weather chat with Dr. Perry. Uh, he's a name that I've been seeing tossed around in the, the weather community for a while now. It was cool to connect with him. So I'd like to thank our good buddy Daniel Sapp for linking us up with Dr. Perry. And, you know, he's probably someone that we'll bring back on here in some future episodes. Yeah, that was really awesome. I'm glad you got to connect with him. So, uh Speaking of weather, what does our current weather look like this week? It's been really warm and dry, but that's going to change a little bit. Ending out the week, it's going to be a little cooler and breezier, but come this weekend, we're going to have a warm front come in that's going to bring some showers, uh, and then behind that warm front is going to be a cold front. And so, you know, Friday is a high of 63, and then Sunday is a high of 49. Um, but it looks to, you know, kind of be a wettish weekend with more rain coming in, you know, overnight Saturday and Sunday being a bit more rain. But then uh, pretty comfortable temps starting off next week with partly cloudy and, you know, no freezing temps on the weather in the forecast for the next, you know, so 10 days or so. So, you know, Maybe it's not going to be the best Sunday to ride, but hopefully you can get something in on Saturday. Yeah, roger that. Well, guys, that's a wrap on this week's episode. And as always, you can find us on social media. Just search Pisgah Podcast. And we've got the web store going on with shirts, koozies, and now water bottles. And you can check that out at pisgahpodcast.bigcartel.com. And if you're trying to orographically get to the other side of the mountain for ripping the descent, then go ahead and click subscribe. Share with your friends, buy your friends a listen to Pisgah t-shirt, water bottle, and a koozie for a Christmas gift. You know what to do and where to find it. Oh yeah. And uh, Mangler, did you speak with Baker at all about your former uh, hobby of tornado chasing? Yes, we did have some quite a bit of discussion on severe weather, and, but that kind of fell down a rabbit hole and I cut that section out of the interview. It's a whole different podcast, isn't it? Yeah, we got that one in the works. Storm chasing the mountain biking. I think that's something these folks probably didn't know about you. Sorry if I haven't. That's okay. All you gotta do is look at my Twitter account. You don't have to scroll back very far to see nothing but severe weather.